Welcome to the New York Mandate podcast, where we take a look at the costs and consequences of New York's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I'm Amy, and in this series, I'll be talking with people who have been directly affected by mandates about their perspectives and experiences. I'm here with Sophie Medina. She is um, one of New York's bravest, uh, which is what we call firefighters here, um, people who work for the FDNY. And um, I have many things I wanna ask you about, um, but I think what I wanna do is just jump right in and uh, cut to the chase about Mm -hmm. what we're talking about today, why we're talking about it. and ask you to explain to me um, what happened uh, when the mandates were announced. Um, how did how did that whole process of the of the uh, vaccine mandates in New York City uh, being implemented unfold for you? Right. Um, so before I even get into that, I'm going to backtrack even before that, you know, and just um, highlight the fact that I worked along with thousands of other first responders, you know, but I can only speak for myself and other firefighters where we all worked uh, throughout the pandemic when there were no vaccines in sight, um, where we had improper PPE and we were told to reuse, you know, uh, personal protective equipment that would never happened in another, would never have happened in another uh, time. And uh, we went along with it because we know our jobs and we understand that there's always a risk versus a reward. And so um, when the reward is saving people, then that's what we do. And we're just, we're just trusted, you know, to assess personal risk. And um, this is, this is our job. So then the men, then uh, a vaccine came into play or something that was called the vaccine. And the people were told that this will stop the spread and, and you catching uh, COVID-19. And um, backtrack again, a lot of people at the height of the pandemic, uh, a lot of firefighters did uh, catch COVID, you know, and some people it was confirmed through, through a test later on. But in the beginning, a lot of people were just getting sick. A lot of us were working sick um, with symptoms, without symptoms. Some people had symptoms that they didn't know were COVID-19 until afterwards. You know, there were people that were working and had no sense of uh, taste or smell for months. And it wasn't until later on that that became a real symptom of uh, COVID-19. So we worked through different phases of the pandemic and we worked, some of us worked sick and didn't know it. Some of us worked sick and did have some symptoms and we continue to work. And so then when the vaccine was introduced as a vaccine, some at first we were told we weren't going to be the first ones to get it because the elderly population would get it first right so we fell to the back of that line too at first and then they did open it up for the first responders and some people were very happy to be you know online to get it and then some people like myself said um well i've been good thus far and i'm fine with not getting it and anybody else can do what they want it was a no pressure thing and then they started this thing where they wanted us to put our um, information into a system that was fairly new to the fire department here. And um, I didn't feel comfortable with that, disclosing medical information because I've never had to do that before. So um, I didn't. And 
There were a lot of people who didn't do it, but that were vaccinated. So they didn't disclose their uh, medical information. But um, then the weird part was that um, the people that were vaccinated within the department, all of a sudden they were removed from that system because the department already knew that they were vaccinated. So they used their medical status without their consent and they removed them from being tested because if you didn't if you didn't say that you weren't vaccinated then you would have to be subjected to testing but then eventually i guess i'm guessing that that cost the city too much money and they said well we already know who has the vaccine so we'll only test the people who haven't disclosed and that hasn't gotten the vaccine through us so then um I guess those numbers didn't show that we weren't just dropping dead from not being vaccinated and our numbers weren't going up of, of getting sick. And so uh, I think it was two weeks after the testing started, they got rid of it for us and they told us that we were gonna be mandated to get this um, vaccine. And uh, some of us refused, some people put in a religious exemption. It was like a window of nine days to put in a religious exemption and um, or a medical exemption or you would be put on leave without pay. And then that was another group. Some people decided, no, I'm not putting in a religious exemption. Even if I'm opposed to it for religious reasons, you know, I'm an American, I, I've never had to do this, even for a flu vaccine, I've never had to ask for an exemption. So, you know, some of us did put in an ex exemption, some of us didn't, some of us did it later on um, for whatever reasons. And so here we are now, I'm on leave without pay. There's a couple of other hundred that may be on leave without pay. And some people were fired on our job. I believe it's um, between nine and 15 firefighters and um, more than 30 or about 30 EMS workers. And these are all people who worked during the pandemic and uh, countless more, as I would say in the hundreds of uh, cops who have uh, retired before their time and also firefighters who have vested out before their time because they didn't want to have to lose everything. So for instance, if I got terminated, I would leave with nothing. You know, I wouldn't leave with my pension investments. It would just be the money I put in. I wouldn't get any, anything back, you know? Um, so that's where I am. And then some people decide to vest out where they get a portion of what they've invested and they'll get their health insurance and their, um, and certain benefits, like after they hit their 20 year mark of when they would have retired. So that's it in a nutshell for me. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're, um, you're on leave without pay because you filed for an exemption and you're waiting for that to be processed. Is that what's happening? Right. So the way they put it is I filed for an exemption after um, the deadline, an arbitrary deadline that they put to file for a religious exemption, because before this, there's never been a deadline of when you can file for a religious exemption. There was never a deadline of when you could put in for Family Medical Leave Act. Um, there's never been an exemption of, hey, I want to take leave without pay um, because I want to go explore another career option with no chance to come back. So all of it has been arbitrary and a way to strong arm people to get this um, medical intervention. And so, yeah, so I'm on involuntary leave without pay. And um, that's where we are right now. And your husband is in the same boat, right? He's in the right. same, has the same status. Leave right. Without, uh, also from the department. Mm -hmm. Right. So your whole family is, your whole family income is affected by this. Right. Yeah. 
Um, when was when did you first uh, receive notice that you were subject to the mandate? Was this in August or when? When did you? When did that? What's the timeline? I want to say it was um, in October. Um, maybe we started hearing whisperings of it because we were paying attention to what was happening with the teachers. And, you know, some of us were showing up to those marches and seeing what was what and trying to show solidarity with um, other city workers. But um, yeah, I think we got the word that in October and it was October 27th was our deadline of when we could submit a religious exemption or a medical exemption. And then if you didn't have um, proof of vaccination in, you couldn't come into work starting November 1st. Okay, okay. Um, so do you have any expectation of when you're gonna hear some resolution to this? Have you been given any information about that? Um, we met with our lawyers this week and um, I, I do believe that the law is on our side and we will end up winning this as far as how long that's gonna last and what type of um, resolution will come from it. Um, that's all, you know, up in the air. I do think that we, that we will win, but it's, um, you know, it's people's decisions of how long they're willing to wait before they move on. Um, right now it's been six months since uh, people have been put on leave without pay. Right. So it's been six months without a paycheck. It's been six months of dipping into savings. Um, you know, uh, for me specifically, it's been six months of, uh, dealing with an injury that I sustained at work. And so that's also an unclear area for me, um, because I have an injury that's from work. Um, I've been told I needed surgery and I really, I should get surgery, but since there's no guarantee that I am going to get my job back, I also don't feel like I should put myself through a surgery that I can live without if I'm not going back to work because the point of the surgery is to put me back uh, to full duty so that I can do my job. Right, right. But if I'm not gonna ever go back to work again based on what the city's saying, then, so it's also affecting me in a different way, you know, that a lot of people may or may not know about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're on leave without pay but you are able to retain uh, some benefits. Do you, because all of your benefits are attached to your job, right? Your health insurance, your uh, retirement, everything. Mm -hmm. um, are you able to, do you have access to all of those benefits while you're on leave? As far, yeah, right now I still have health benefits and I still, um, this is considered a, a worker's, like a disability from work. I'm not getting paid though. So it's weird. I've never heard of something like this where you get an injury on the job and you're not getting paid. The only thing that it has been getting paid has been my medical coverage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you were terminated, you would lose, uh, you kind of mentioned before, you would lose all of those benefits. You would right. Lose, what, what would you lose? You would lose your health insurance. Health insurance. You would lose your uh, pension, anything that was... Um, in your pension, I think, except for like what you've contributed, but the okay. stuff that has accumulated, you wouldn't get that back. You would just get anything that you've contributed, all your contributions, but that would be one check where I think it's taxed when you get it back. And um, yeah. Okay. So I wanna ask you, um, 
and this is like a, a personal question that mm -hmm. people don't normally ask people that they don't know that well. Yeah. Um, how is this affecting your uh, your daily life, your your financial life? I'm asking this because I think that it's important for people to understand what the costs of implementing uh, this policy are, and you're bearing the costs. Mm -hmm. So, um, so to the extent that you want to talk about your personal and family finances, mm -hmm. how is this? Um, how has being not getting a paycheck for you're saying six months now. Um, how has that changed the way that you're living, and what issues has that pre presented for you financially? Um, yeah, it's just made things very tight. Um, it brings up a lot of stressors in in people's lives. Like for instance, uh, my partner and I, we deal with finances differently. So uh, I can be stressed out about money in one way and he can be stressed out about money in another way. And then the way it manifests itself could be problematic at times. Um, but I think it's also, you know, I'm, I'm a half full kind of person, glass is half full kind of person and uh, a grateful to even have a glass type of person. So I continue to focus on what's on the other side of this because it may be that I never get my job back. It may be that um, this will end in a, you know, in a way that I don't like, but at the end of the day, you have to continue to move forward. So the finances, they're not great. And, you know, we do what we have to do to make ends meet. Thankfully, we're both people that are safe for a rainy day type of, you know, we're, we're that type of couple. So we have had money and savings, but it really was like rainy day funds. It's not like slush funds. It's not, um, you know, things like that. We're not, <laughs> we're not Scrooge McDuck swimming in our money bin, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's hard, you know, we can't do everything that we want for the kids. They used to go to swim class. They don't go to swim class anymore. Um, things like that. How How is it for your kids? They're good. Uh, we've been homeschooling them since the uh, remote school option started. Okay. Tried with the remote schooling and we didn't like what was going on. We thought it was uh, ineffective and uh, causing more confusion in their lives. So we just decided to pull them out of the system completely. And um, so now we actually like homeschooling better for them. And it's nice to be out of that part of the system. Mm -hmm. They're elementary school age. Yeah. Eight and six. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But that's, a, so this has been a real upheaval in their lives as well. You, when you're that, that age, that young, you really think of your parents' work as sort of the routine of your life and it's what your parents do. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> you're not going to school anymore your parents are doing something completely different that that's got to be uh yeah it changed for them yeah it is um but like I said I try to keep it positive I let them know how um we're grateful to be at home with them um it may not be exactly how we would want to be at home with them and you know they've always had one parent uh, mostly at home because Tommy and I would work around each other anyway. That's mm -hmm. how we worked our schedules because, you know, when he would work, I would be at home with the kids and vice versa because we had that kind of schedule. Um, but now it's, we're both at home most days and, or one of us might be doing an odd job here or there, but yeah, I think, I think they feel lucky that we're both at home, but they understand also what's going on, you know, in a, in a kid's way of seeing things, but 
they know that we're not working. They know that uh, money doesn't grow on trees, but that we're lucky to have what we have. So, right. yeah. Right. Tell me, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about also is just uh, the job that you were doing. Um, you're talking about how you were working different shifts. And I think that for people who don't have close family uh, working in, in a fire department or in a similar kind of field, we really don't know what that job is like um, day to day. And, uh, you know, we see it on TV or something, we play with the toys when we're little, but, but people don't understand what the reality of a day of work uh, for a firefighter is. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So usually um, we, we will work uh, usually a 24 hour shifts and um, it's good because you get to be at the firehouse for 24 hours. And in that 24 hours, you, um, you usually like eat breakfast together, barring any alarms coming in, but you know, you're there, uh, waiting for the emergency to come. And in that 24 hours, you're also doing administrative work, like building inspections, um, we're checking hydrants, um, responding to any complaint of, um, maybe an obstructed exit, a, um, um, sometimes like, um, well, like a tenant will complain about a landlord not keeping a fire exit closed or something. So we'll respond to those kinds of things. And then there are the major emergencies, like someone stuck in an elevator with a medical condition, um, you know, a baby burning their hands, playing with the water or, you know, so there's medical emergencies that we go to. There's gas emergencies when people smell a gas odor, and then there's, our bread and butter, which is fighting fires, fire suppression. So um, that's a typical day. We'll cook a meal together if we have time in the firehouse. And it, you know, it's like a family in the firehouse. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Did that, so um, during the pandemic, did your day-to-day -day change when you were working during the pandemic? As far as, um, yeah, I think everybody's day-to-day -day changed, but in the firehouse, um, it became even a tighter group because they made it, they changed our schedule to an ABCD schedule. So what that meant is only the D groups would work with the D groups, only A groups would work with A group to try to avoid cross-contaminating. That was the plan anyway. That's how they try to keep us, you know, as away from other people as possible um, to prevent transmission and um so i i was in d group and so i got very i got even closer with um the people that i would work with because i would only work with the same crew all the time and um so that changed you know and then we could only go we weren't doing building inspections anymore during that time we were limiting our exposure to to be around other people we weren't doing um we were doing very we were only doing COVID responses and fire responses, uh, but we weren't, all these other crazy calls that we get throughout the day, we weren't getting them anymore. So we were spending more time together in the firehouse and then responding to COVID calls and fire calls. What were the COVID calls like? They were mostly, at first, there were mostly people, you know, with uh, labor breathing, or someone that just uh, didn't wake up that morning after having a fever. But a lot of them came in just as fever cough and use uh, universal precaution is what it always typically would come in as. Mm -hmm. 
And what what is the fire department's role in that? Because I think a lot of people think of, you know, paramedics, ambulances, uh, people related to hospitals responding to things like that. They don't necessarily think about the fire department. T tell me about what the right. fire So in New York City, and I want to remind everyone that I'm not speaking on behalf of the FDNY, but I will tell you my experience within the department is um, as a first responder, which is where um, firefighters fall in, we respond to medical emergencies first. We're usually the ones that can get there the fastest, usually in under four minutes. And so we'll, we'll stop the bleeding. If someone's bleeding, we'll start compressions and rescue breathing if that's needed. Um, we're, we can apply tourniquets. You know, we can remove somebody from a dangerous situation and then start applying uh, medical interventions. The only thing we don't do is transport and we can't um, give any medicine. Okay. All right. And what was your own personal and family experience with COVID? Mm -hmm. um, so at first it was just scary, you know, because Tommy and I, we, every time we walked out the door, we didn't know, uh, you know, on top of the fire department, um, firefighting being a dangerous job of firefighting, you know, inherently is a danger, can be a dangerous job, right? So there's already that fear, but you, we met each other as firefighters. We had children already being firefighters. So this has been our life and that's always been the risk, right? So, but then you add COVID to the mix. Every time we left, it was one person coming in the door, one person leaving the door um, and going into an unknown. So there was that level of stress and worry that we would be bringing something back to the kids because we really didn't have anybody else, especially when we didn't know what was what. We couldn't really take our kids to my mom's house. Um, his parents live further away and they're older. So these just it was just us. So our kids were constantly being exposed when people didn't really know if this could affect children or whatever. And, you know, we upped our vitamin C, we upped our vitamin D, we ate a little cleaner. Um, we drank a lot of water, like things that we normally did, but we just, we upped it because there were so many unknowns. You know, we, we built a home gym during the pandemic because we're like, we got to keep it moving. You know, we have to stay healthy. Um, and so that's how it affected us. No one in my family, a lot of people got COVID in my family. Uh, Tommy and I didn't at the height of the pandemic, even though we were in the thick of it, we never got sick. Um, and then um, eventually, yeah, so some people in my family got uh, COVID at different points, but um, everybody thankfully was fine. And um, we have elderly people in my family and Thankfully, they were all fine, too. And, um, you know, some people got vaccinated, some people didn't. We all still commingled after some time. And, you know. Right. It's been uh, pretty normal. Yeah. It's, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been pretty normal. Uh, even with people like we were at a gathering the other day and my uncle is one that he will hand out hand sanitizers and he's probably wearing a mask a lot more than I ever have, but it's never an issue when we get together. It's just, you know, we're happy to be there. Mm -hmm. So then when the vaccines were rolled out, what was, what was your thinking about that <clears throat> initially? Uh, for me, 
I thought it was too soon, you know, for, for me to feel comfortable taking um, something like that, that I started to quickly see was affecting, you know, people differently. And it, it seemed like people with comorbidities were more susceptible to like having terrible uh, complications of COVID. And it's not to say that that happened to everybody and that healthy people weren't you know, suffering terrible effects from COVID too. But that was my line of thought. You know, I've been good this whole time. I'm going to continue to be well. Um, I'm not one that likes to take medicine to begin with. Um, if I have a headache, I'll usually drink water. And that's usually the, the headache is usually the symptom of, oh, you're dehydrated. You mm -hmm. have to drink water. Same with, if I have a stomach ache, I don't go and grab Pepto-Bismol. I figure out why do I have a stomach ache? And I try to get to the root of the issue. So to me, uh, the vaccination was probably not something that I was going to do. I don't take a flu shot every year. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't really look for medical interventions in my daily life. And I try to live as clean as I can. Um, so that's, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't excited or I wasn't I didn't really care that there was a vaccine. It wasn't something that I was like looking forward to or that made me feel less worried or more worried or anything until they started trying to mandate it. That's when I really just started thinking about it. But yeah, right. it was never like, oh, COVID's going to be over because this vaccine is out. You didn't think that? No. <laughs> okay. Because I, I think some people did. That, that I, was, know. Like, I know. I know public officials uh, said, and um, a lot of people thought that that was the key to the pandemic being over. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of people were told that and believed it. And here we are years later, and it's still, we people, I think I just got an alert on my phone that New York City is back at a medium level of risk for COVID. And we're one of the highest vaccinated populations. Mm -hmm. And so I really don't know what they want people to do with that constant barrage of information that, oh, something bad is happening and it's COVID related. Like, mm -hmm. Okay, so there were a lot of people who felt the same way. You know, they didn't have strong feelings about the vaccine. They look after their own health, um, did not feel terribly personally vulnerable to uh, COVID. Um, and then the mandates came down and they took the vaccine to keep their job. I think everyone in New York knows people who did that, right? Um, <clears throat> so why did you make this very difficult choice um, to not comply with the mandate just to keep your job? Um... To me, the difficult choice would be to go against my beliefs. That would be the difficult choice. Um, I try not to feel like entitled to anything in life. And so as much as I love my job and um, <clears throat> I work really hard um, to get here, it's, it's not an entitlement and um, my body's my only one I have. So to me, the difficult choice would be to um, just give everything up that I believe in 
to keep a job. Mm -hmm. I've always been a fighter, you know, it's who I am. And so I'm not going to just say, okay, if this is what I have to do to keep a job, it's a job. It's a job that I love. It's a job that I don't want to lose. But to me, the difficult choice would be to go against everything I believe in and to look at my children and say, well, guys, sometimes you just got to sell your soul. I'm not going to do that. Right. Right. Um, I, I think I, I want to understand what, what those beliefs are, because um, there are a lot of people who just think it's a vaccine. Everybody takes lots of vaccines. Like, why is this such a big deal? You've probably taken other vaccines, right? You've taken mm -hmm. uh, childhood vaccines, probably your children have. Um, but like, why was it different this time? And what are the core beliefs that are leading you to feel that this one is, is different and it's, you know, enough that you're going to make this major decision um, that affects your life so much? Well, I think also there's, this is such a like multifaceted question, right? Because when people say, oh, you've taken childhood vaccines, uh, childhood vaccines were given to me. I was a child. And someone made those decisions for me, right? So we could take that out of the equation. Um, as far as, um, let's say I always took the flu shot, which I don't, but I've always had the choice to do so. And so when choice is taken away, it's not a true choice that someone's making. Someone's being coerced into doing something. So to me, that's... Um, I, I believe in like, I have a creator, you know, and I believe that God gives us all free will. So I'm not, for me, I can't allow someone to tell me what to do when not even God, our creator gives us free, like our, God gives us free will so that we can make our own decisions. And then there is supposed to be a day of judgment and then God will judge our decisions. Right. So who I'm, I don't feel comfortable with a government telling me that I have to put something into my body in order to retain my employment that has never rested on that. That doesn't sit well with me. It really uh, puts me in a heightened sense of alertness. Uh, it really makes me like come into my own and figure out what's going on, uh, what, what is really happening um, outside of this vaccine. Because to me, it's not about the vaccine, it's about the mandate. It's why are they trying to force people to go against what they believe? Like I've said this before, when people have a gut feeling, it's a God feeling. Someone higher than you was trying to tell you something and people need to tune into that. And I do. And uh, I, to me, that's the difference because it's not the medicine portion of it. It's not the, oh, if you have a headache, maybe you'll take an Advil sometimes, um, but it's the forcing. Why, why is it so important to force this on me. There's something going on, I think. And I don't know what it is. I'm, I don't need to be a conspiracy theorist to see that they're forcing people to do this and calling it a choice. And it's not, it's not a choice. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that, um, you know, when I've been reporting on people speaking at protests and interviewing people, that's something that I hear a lot from people that it's a matter of uh, religious conviction um, in part that, 
um, that they feel that what they do with their body is a choice they make uh, between themselves and God, and that's not something that they want the government intervening in. Um, I think, so do, do you agree with me that that's a pretty, that there are a lot of people who have um, not complied with the mandates for that reason? Mm-hmm. I would say even, I would say even at this point, if I were a person that wanted to take the vaccine and took the vaccine on my own, I still wouldn't tell the government whether I got it or not, because I don't know why they want to know so bad. And I don't understand why this is being held over our heads to be gainfully employed. So yeah, I wouldn't even, I just wouldn't go along with this medical segregation that they're creating for whatever reason. It's like the government is creating this um, subclass of people that are choosing not to be uh, vaccinated. And now it's this choice, right? Not getting vaccinated. Where, where does it end? So let's, let's um, talk about their, the arguments that they're making a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument that I think that they're making um, earlier, we, there was the, the argument about transmission, right? And that has kind of faded away. Um, now there's an argument that it um, well, there actually, I, I'm going to correct myself. There, there is still an argument about transmission. Um, they present studies saying that um, unvaccinated people are more likely to transmit the virus. Um, they say that uh, you know the vaccines reduce uh, hospitalization levels, and if we have too high a level of hospitalization, it overtaxes the hospital system, people can't get medical treatment. So a lot of people view, um, and I think this is the public health um, sort of official view, um, they view the vaccines as a kind of civic duty that you do for to protect other people, to protect our medical care system. So what, what do you make of that argument? I think that's all been debunked. You know, even if people believe that in the beginning, uh, the director of the CDC has come out and said it. There's video of it where she has come out and said, oh, we thought we didn't think of waning efficacy of the vaccination. And now we're seeing that. So the, the, I, I think um, people need to remember that childhood vaccination has always been to protect you and your child or your child for the prevent, you know, you're trying to prevent your child from getting a disease, right? A childhood disease, whether you agree with that or not. Mm -hmm. That's what a vaccination has always been. Uh, For anyone to now try to say that it's a civic duty and it's to prevent the spread and the way the vaccination is supposed to work is that you're exposed to something, your body will create the antibodies it's supposed to create, to prevent you from being infected with that thing that you were already exposed to. So the argument that if I get vaccinated today, that it's going to prevent me from getting infected, that's out the window because we already know how many people have gotten infected after being vaccinated. And Omicron pretty much dispelled that whole uh, myth of people who were vaccinated weren't catching it and weren't spreading it. Mm-hmm. So that's out. And um, what was your other question? Um, 
Yeah, it's not, it's not keeping anyone from catching it anymore. And it's not keeping, or was it ever? And there are even some studies, you know, from out of Israel, we've been behind Israel in all of this. And if you've been paying attention to the studies that Israel has come out with, when they were on their fourth booster, they were already showing signs of vaccine uh, efficacy waning after the fourth booster and what that looks like. So, I mean, there's a study for everything at this point and the powers that be, especially in New York City, they continue to um, say one thing and say the science, the science, but they're not looking at all the studies that anyone can read on their own if they have access to the internet that are actual uh, medical journals that are actual peer reviewed. You know, they're not just um, Huffington Post or something that someone picked up and ran with. They're actual studies, you know. Right. People who um, are refusing this vaccine are often characterized as being an against science, anti-science. That's not what you're saying. No. And um, the way they keep saying like the science, the science, uh, I think everybody knows at this point that the science is the doctor that has been on TV this whole time as the science. It's, you just can't have one person that's the science. If we If we went off of that, we still wouldn't know how our solar system worked because there was a guy once, right, that was saying, oh, no, uh, everything doesn't revolve around the earth, you know, um, that's not what it is. And he was called a heretic and he was killed, right? And then it was years later that, oh, yeah, that guy was right. You know, uh, that's not the way science works, um, where you have an idea and then you tell everybody your idea and no one can question it. That's the whole job of a scientist is to continue to try to disprove their own idea so that people can see, wow, this is actually holding true against everything we're throwing up against it, you know? Right. So the exemption that you filed for um, was a religious exemption. Mm -hmm. Do you have any information about how they're making decisions about religious exemptions? How are they evaluating, uh, you know, requests for a religious exemption? No, no, we don't. Um, but I, I do think um, in our lawsuit, they've asked about that. So, but yeah, I don't know. And no one seemed to have any clear answers on that. And our timeline, our window was very small and no one was very helpful with it. And um, what, what kind of information did you have to submit to them in support of that request? You had to write um, a personal statement on your beliefs. Okay. Yeah, but we, we don't know who saw that. So that's another thing that's, to me, it's, it's crazy that I'm just sending off my, you know, it used to be you didn't talk about religions and politics around mixed company, right? And I'm sending off my three-letter paper on my belief system to a stranger that is going to judge me now on whether or not my belief system is real and how that affects me and my, you know, whether I can keep a job or not. Right, right. So I want to ask you about the, um, the legal action. Um, mm -hmm. But first, I want to ask um, about your union. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because um, 
that may come into the legal action, but what, what uh, you know, during this whole process of learning about the mandates and then being subject to the mandates, how did your union representation come into this, if at all? Um, our union, our union and um, the NYPD union, they're the only ones that filed, um, well, I don't think they were the only one. I think the MLC, which is like the collective, filed a, a lawsuit, but the uh, UFA, they filed several lawsuits. Um, I don't think any of them were tackling the mandate themselves, but they had to do with like collective bargaining or the fact that um, everyone should have a hearing before they're put on things like leave without pay. Um, so, they didn't totally sell us sell us out, it seems. But you know, I also think that there was a lot of fear coming from all the unions. Like, well, we don't really know what we're gonna do, what you're gonna do, but it seems like if you want to keep your job, you got to get the shot. And to me, that was incredible that that was their answer because that's never been <laughs> that's never been a thing. It's our job. I could literally go out and like drive drunk into the house next door. And the longest I can be suspended for without pay is 30 days. And then I'm entitled to my paycheck and I'm entitled to due process of the law. And here it's uh, completely arbitrary the way we're being treated. You know, we're put on a leave without pay that has never been used in a punitive function. Um, we are told that this is the only um, repair is to to put something into our bodies in order for us to keep our jobs. Um, we're not being paid while this is playing out in the court system. So I don't like to speak too much about the unions because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes and I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but this is the only time that I've ever seen people not being paid for something that is not as big of a deal as um, some of the things that, you know, firefighters have gotten in trouble for doing and they're still receiving a paycheck. You know, people that we've seen in the paper that are still receiving paychecks while right. they're having their due process, which I believe in. Right. <clears throat> and so, but you're not, um with the legal action that you're taking now and the you know things that you're doing now related to trying to get get reinstatement your your union is not that's not uh, an entity that you're working with uh, on those um, issues we have um spoken with them and they have shown support recently mm -hmm. so they have shown public support they actually um have donated to us at this point with uh, Bravest for Choice, for Bravest for Choice, because um, the things that we do cost money. The fundraisers that we try to do, um, our lawsuits cost money. Um, anything that we do to try to raise awareness costs money when it comes to printing out flyers and things like that. So they actually have shown public support recently. And I think that they understand that this is the right side of history. Um, but I think there are politicians too, and politicians don't always um, act 
in the way. You know what? I'm not a politician, so I don't know whose hands have to be greased and what happens behind closed doors. And I'm not going to speculate what that life is like, but. Right. Okay, so uh, you brought up Bravest for Choice, and we haven't really even explained um, for people who don't know um, what that organization is. This is an organization that you uh, were part of founding. You're one of the co-founders of Bravest for Choice. Right. Um, so tell us, um, for people who don't know, what that organization is and uh, how it was founded and what it's doing now. So Bravest for Choice started with uh, two firefighters, um, not me, um, two firefighters just uh, via text message, like, what are we going to do? These mandates are coming down. What are we going to do? So then um, it became a telegram group and people started talking on it. And we had a Zoom meeting and we knew that there was a union meeting coming up. And then, um, so a couple of us became like the core group and we spoke at the union meeting and we let them know like these mandates are coming. We don't want to be caught out there with our pants down pretty much. What are we going to do? And we were sure that the outgoing mayor wasn't going to do anything crazy, you know, that they were fine with the testing option that we had, that, um, and that the next administration didn't seem to want to change anything and mandate anything for the firefighters. So they left us with that. And then four days later, the mandates did come down. And it was exactly what we had warned them about. And so from there, Bravest for Choice um, became more than a telegram group. We started taking action. Um, we would constantly contact people from work and, and the union and trying to find answers. Um, people like to joke and call us the shadow union uh, because we make phone calls, we show up places, um, we hold people's feet to the fire and we're trying to hold people accountable and have them answer questions and look at the people that they're affecting you know, and so Bravest for Choice um, is our group right now. We've raised funds to um, fund these lawsuits that are super expensive and um, we're not getting paid for it. All the money that we have has been, has gone to, for these lawsuits. Um, we currently have, um, we've put it out there that we have a grant for any firefighter or EMS worker that's really exper experiencing difficulties that they be that we might be able to give them something to pay a bill hold them over um but really all of our money is um dedicated to the lawsuits right now and um that's where we are you know we try to keep it in the public eye that this is still going on i understand like people don't even know some some of these people don't even know that the mandates are still affecting people and that people aren't getting paid or that you know, kids still have to wear masks at school and things like that. So that's what we try to do. We try to keep public awareness. We're trying to build a um, coalition with other organizations uh, nationwide and even internationally so that things like this don't ever happen again. Are there people who are um, taking advantage of the funds that are available for the, um, the, the emergency funds that you're talking about to pay bills and the other people who are applying for that? There hasn't been anyone that has um, reached out to us on that that I'm aware of. Um, I don't I don't manage the emails, but um, yeah, I haven't heard yet of anyone like reaching out. But firefighters are hard. Firefighters are like tough people to ask for help. So, and EMS workers, you know, like 
they're the ones that are always helping people at a hard time. So, you know, and we're resourceful. We, um, we do what we have to do to make ends meet, you know, and I'm only speaking for myself. I know my husband and I, we do what we have to do to make ends meet. So we haven't asked for any uh, <laughs> grant money. Um, so I'm sure everybody else that's suffering is like just doing what they have to do. But, you know, I will put that out there again. Like you could definitely uh, email Bravest for Choice. And if we can help, if it's a bill that we could pay, then we'll try to do that. Are, are you yourself, um, are, are you doing other kinds of work um, while you're not, while, while you're on leave? Like paid work? Yeah. Mm, I don't want the IRS to come and get me. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I am trying to invest in myself. There are certain um, courses that I'm looking to take um, just for my next step if I have to move on from this. But yeah, um, so you're, you're doing that, you're homeschooling your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, you're doing the work that you do with, uh, Bravest for Choice. Um, you're busy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on, even though you're not doing the work that you were doing before. Yeah. The only thing that doesn't get done is, uh, my housework. <laughs> <laughs> Space is a disaster. <laughs> Uh, it's always have, good to have an excuse, right? <laughs> the housework. Um, <laughs> um, tell me, so tell me more about the legal action, though. What what is the, what are those cases um, that are being brought, and what what are the grounds for the legal actions that you're taking? So, New Yorkers for Religious Liberties.org is. Um, the website for the collective class action lawsuit that is um, in the court system right now. And that's uh, the Nelson Madden Black firm. And they also have a lawsuit with the DO uh, against or for the DOE workers that came before ours. And I think they're uh, closely related. Um, I don't want to speak out of turn when it comes to the lawsuits and what what's what, but um, it is a religious uh, liberties grounds and uh, constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. So that's where our legal team is headed with that. And they are in the court systems. And, you know, our lawyers seem to think that we have a very good chance of um, beating this and setting precedent. Well, I'll be interested. Um, this, this is the beginning of this podcast series. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so with you, which I think is a great, I'm, I'm very happy to begin with you. Um, but down the line, I, I'd like to talk with uh, lawyers who are working on these issues and hear from them about what, yeah. the, legal, what the legal issues are. Yeah. Um, we actually just spoke to him about that, that we need to get this more in the forefront of what it is that we're doing, because obviously our lawyers will know what they're allowed to say, you know, um, anything we speak about, I can't just like broadcast it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's a, give me your take on the on the media attention that this issue has or has not received. Um, because the reason that I'm starting this series is that um, I'm seeing very little coverage of it. And as you were saying earlier, um, there are a lot of people who are unaware that I come across that there are in fact mandates. Mm -hmm. um, that are that are currently in effect and that there are people who are affected by those mandates 
Um, so what, what do you think about the what's happening in the media around this issue? Um, I find it disgusting, honestly, the way um, when I was younger, uh, journalism was one of the things that I had thought about doing because I was very curious and I like, you know, to listen to people's stories and ask questions. And so <clears throat> anytime I've been interviewed where the whole interview isn't captured um, and it's um, it's told in such a in such a spin or they take one point of um, the interview and just focus on that. Um, it's just discouraging because you start to hear those voices of, um, oh, the, the fake news, the fake news. And you start to realize, dang, there's some truth to that because a lot of this stuff is not being reported. Um, the way the, the news cycle works, where it's just, you're being fed the same thing over and over and everything is um, breaking news. And then it's not really anything that's relevant to people's lives. It's uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Um, everything is a distraction to what's actually affecting everyday people. And then when I see the news, it's always something that's uh, dividing people rather than having people work collectively, you know, to just be better humans together, you know, and to have a better uh, United States of America, right? Where we are truly united. Um, every, so I don't like the way the media has been covering this because for a long time, any dissenting opinion has been called misinformation, has been called a lie. You weren't allowed to talk about the Wuhan uh, lab, uh, lab leak theory. You know, people would be deplatformed off of social medias. You couldn't talk about it in the news. Um, and I just think it's incredible that when you call yourself a journalist and you won't even cover things, you won't even ask a question publicly. Um, I don't I don't like the media coverage of what's been going on, you know, mm -hmm. and it, no one really wants to tell our stories. So that's why it's encouraging, you know, when you're doing this and there's very few like you, but, you know, these are the real stories. They covered all the pots and pans being banged during the pandemic for the first responders. You know what really gets me the worst? Like when I watch um, like Good Day New York, throwing these softball questions to the mayor. And then he'll say something that's not true at all. And no one come, no one has like a fact sheet to be able to say, well, actually this and this, or, you know, when you say cops aren't being fired, is that because there's a mass exodus of early retirees because they don't wanna be terminated and lose all their pension? You know, like, no one asked him those kinds of questions and they just let things slide. Right, right. Has this, has this whole turn of events um, changed your politics at all? Does it, has it changed the way that you think about local politics, national politics, any of it? Um, you know, at the heart of it, I think um, I'm still the same person with my same beliefs and um, practices. But it has made me reconsider the Democratic Party for sure. I've always been um, what people would call liberal. I, and I've been a registered Democrat uh, almost my whole life. And um, I've pretty much voted down the line for blue. And I won't do that again. I won't do that again.
and I, I've always thought I was informed on, on the issues and um, enough to make those decisions, right? To vote democratic, but no, the veil's been lifted. <laughs> Okay. I, I think there's there's really a perception that um, people who are opposed to the mandates are right wing, are Republicans. You're saying you've been a, a lifelong Democrat up until this point. Up until this point. I recently just changed to Republican. And it's not because I believe in the Republican Party. Um, it was to get um, somebody into a so, so that I would be able to sign a petition in a couple of days um, to put somebody on um, a ballot for the mm -hmm. primaries. And I couldn't do that if I weren't a Republican. So it's not even like I'm a true Republican. I think now I would identify more as a libertarian and I just want, I'm an American. I just wanna be left alone to pursue life, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Like that's it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also served in the military, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I, I should back up and say, like, how, <laughs> tell me, tell everyone a little bit about yourself because you, like, how did you come to be a firefighter in the first place? Um, you said you thought about being a journalist when, when you were a kid. What else did you want to do when you were a kid? <laughs> um, yeah, so I was in the military right after high school. Um, in high school, I wanted probably, probably to be a marine biologist. And um, I got the marine part down, not the biologist. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then, yeah, I went to the military right after high school. I served four years. And um, then I came out, I did security for five years. And then I joined the fire department. You were in the Marines? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, why did you decide to do that? Not everyone goes into the military. So I didn't really know anything about the military. And uh, once I started applying to colleges and my guidance counselor said, oh, well, you don't have the grades to be to go to these schools for marine biology, um, which in hindsight, she should have probably said, hey, go to community college and lift up your math grades, right? And then look into these schools that you're interested in, in looking into. But she, you know, I went to Theodore Roosevelt High School, which was one of the worst schools in the city at that time. And um, that that was, she left me like no options. So I started like looking in, you know, in between the college books of where to apply. Every other like 20 pages, there's an insert for join the Navy, join the Army, join the Marines. So I ripped all those out. I send out, you know, like a form of interest. And um, I was only 17 at the time. So uh, all of them were like, oh, well, once you're 18, call us back. But the Marines said, oh, you're 17? <laughs> your, your mom could sign, could sign your contract then. Just come in for a meeting. And um, so I went to speak to the Army guy, and I went to speak to, to the Marine uh, recruiter. And uh, once I learned what the Marines stood for and what they were, then I'm like, oh, well, now I want to be a Marine. You know, now I believe in this. So this is what I want to do. I want to do the hardest one, you know? So. So what, what did they, what was it that they stood for that was, that you related to, that you, that attracted you? The way the recruiter uh, spins it, 
is, um, you know, they're the elite fighting force for this country. They're the tip of the spear. Um, their boot camp is the hardest. It's the longest. Um, it's just, if you want the challenge, this is it. Um, you know, things like that. So you can serve in these many places and all this stuff. It was just like the baddest of all the branches. And so right. I'm like, ah, oh, that's what I got to do then. <laughs> did it, did it live up to expectations, your military experience? Uh, yes and no. Um, I love the Marines, um, like the connections that I made and, um, I was in Okinawa, Japan for my first year and then um, in California in 29 Palms uh-huh. for my last three years. And so um, I do love the experiences that I got in the Marines. Um, but I also have learned growing up that um, President Eisenhower was right with the uh, military industrial complex where our people are just used for the benefit of a few rich people that continue to create wars, to make money, it becomes a profitable um, enterprise, you know? So I don't like that aspect of the military, but I do think that there's a place for it. And I I wish that our military focused more on just keeping our nation safe and um, not interfering in the affairs of other governments, but that's a whole other conversation, but. (laughs) Yeah, I still do believe, you know, in our military and the people that serve for sure. Mm -hmm. So you were, um, you were born and raised in New York, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So then you were in the military and you were out of New York, but then Mm -hmm. you came back. Yeah. And you worked, you said you were doing security that was here. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then you decided to go into training to be a firefighter right so how, so how my, why that my last year um of security i was actually working at the un mm-hmm. and um so i was kind of happy there it was a nice place to work at um i liked working with the na- international community and the different types of people that you meet um but firefighting had always been something that you know it piqued my interest every time i would see a fire truck and um I'd wonder like what that job was like. And then where I was doing security before the UN, I knew a couple of guys that had taken the test for the test that came previous to the one that I ended up taking. And so I spoke to them a little bit and um, I'm like, you know what? I'll, I'll apply to take the test. And it was about four of us, four or five of us that we applied to take the test. Um, we scored uh, really well. And so we, our process went like, lockstep you know most people take like two or three years after they um take their test and we hit it like all at the right time so me and uh three other guys we went to boot camp I mean not boot camp uh, the academy here together and so yeah it was just it seemed like a natural progression to do that type of work and I liked it and yeah mm-hmm. it was yeah I've, I've never been like an office like an office worker Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> I got that. <laughs> yeah, it's it seems like you've always looked around for the biggest challenge and the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shot for that. Yeah. Um, and you didn't look for this challenge, but you're 
definitely taking it on. Um, so when when did you start working as a firefighter? In um, 2008. In 2008, okay. So, so that's a little while. And yeah. That, it, that you were doing that job and that's kind of your career job. Yeah, this is the <laughs> longest I've ever, everything in my life has probably been like four year increments. Mm-hmm. you know, high school, four years, then the Marines, four years, security was five years. And then this has been the longest and this was going to be, you know, my career. Right. Because people who go into um, jobs like that um, and jobs that are municipal uh, jobs, uh, unionized jobs, they have an expectation that they're going to work a set amount of time, especially when it's a physical job, like being mm-hmm. a firefighter. Um, and then they will have a pension from that. And there, there's, that's kind of the deal, right? Yeah. A job like that. Mm-hmm. So this situation where you have this new requirement <laughs> um, for employment that wasn't there when you initially went into it and did all the training, and, um, that's, they're, they're changing things up. Yeah. And I, I, I do believe that they're doing it illegally because it wasn't a condition of our employment. And um, it's one thing to require new hires to have a, a condition of employment that's different from yours because that's happened. But this is, in my opinion, definitely not part of, um, it wasn't ever collectively bargained, you know, unless something happened that we don't know about and someone's lying. But um, yeah, this wasn't collectively bargained for us. And um, it wasn't a condition of employment when I started. And um, yeah, it's crazy that it's happening like this, but. But it is a condition now. So everyone new coming into the department has to have the COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. That has to be vaccinated. To my knowledge. Yeah. Are Mm -hmm. there other. Uh, do you know if there are other, uh, were there, were there any medical, medical requirements when you came in? I mean, I, I, I imagine you have like a physical fitness requirement, that kind of thing. Did you have vaccination mm-hmm. requirements when you came in? Uh, I'm sure we did for childhood vaccinations. Um, but it wasn't as if you had to show proof of all your vaccinations. Um, they do a blood test and in your blood. So this is also one of the things that I would say to people that call this a vaccination. <clears throat> when every year since I've been on, on the fire department, they check my blood. They check everyone's blood at our, at our yearly physicals. And part of what they're checking is to make sure that your titers are still good for hepatitis, um, your tetanus shot. Um, so they can tell that by looking at your blood that you still have titers, which means you have immunity to these vaccinations that you received, most of us as a child or late in um, adolescence. And most of us still have that. Every, every year that I've gone to get my blood work done, I've never needed a new hepatitis shot. I've never needed a booster shot for tetanus, even past the 10 year mark, because my blood is still showing titers. That is not happening with the vaccine that they're saying will keep you from getting COVID or spreading COVID. Mm-hmm. So while we may have had different um, vaccination requirements when I came on, 
you also, there were some that if you didn't have proof of vaccination, it showed in your blood. And so they would take that as, okay, well, she's immune because she has her titers. Right, right. So let's talk about what what's happening um, going forward. <laughs> so I guess the, the outcome that you would hope for would be the legal case would go through, you would be reinstated with back pay, right? Mm -hmm. That would be the optimal outcome. And, uh, and there would be no more <clears throat> mandates in place. Um, what if that doesn't happen? You must be thinking about this. Um, mm -hmm. what, what do you do next if you lose the legal case, the mandates stay in place, you can no longer work um, with the department, not, but not just with the department, but with, um, we, should, we should say that there are uh, vaccine mandates in place for New York City employees of all the different agencies, but also for private employers. Right, uh, pretty much you can't work in New York City. You could not, for example, go back to working security. Is that correct? I mean, I guess there's always the, um the possibility of working somewhere else in New York City and actually receiving a religious exemption, because I do know people who work in private companies who have had religious exemptions approved, no problem, no questions asked, um, because most places don't want that kind of like legal issue. Mm -hmm. Because when you read um, like the EEOC policies of New York State and New York City, it seems pretty cut and dry that when somebody puts forth an, a religious exemption, it should just be taken as their sincere belief unless um, there's some crazy reason why they've shown that they don't have a, a sincere belief. But yeah, so I know a lot of people who are working with religious exemptions in private companies, but it's just the city agencies seem to be like, I don't know what they were told from the top down, but they haven't been accepting ours. So I guess there is a chance that I could work somewhere else and have a religious exemption in the city. But is that, so is that here. what are you considering as options um, if, if the mandates do stay in place? You know what? I don't know. I, um, I don't know. But like I said, I, I'd be investing in myself. I wouldn't ever want to work for anybody again. So if I did uh, totally switch lanes, I would like to go into childbirth education and um, postpartum uh, help for new moms because I think that's very important and that's um where a lot of my um like medical awakening started happening for myself you know I've always um had whatever religious beliefs that constantly like evolve and uh you know you grow spiritually as you get older and you hit different phases of your life but um pregnancy really <clears throat> opened my eyes to like the medical um institutions that we have and the problematic um medical industry that we have here in the states so i've always had for a long time i've had a healthy skepticism of the medical industry um and so i would love to be able and and becoming a mother and the whole um state of being pregnant and carrying child um that really changed my um, my views on how to take care of your body and 
how to make decisions for yourself and not not just listen to everything that I've been taught my whole life when it comes to, you know, my body and what pregnancy is and just the healthcare system as a, as a whole. What, what disappointed you about the healthcare system when you were expecting? So for me, it's the knowledge. It's um, what I remember thinking and learning was that you just don't know what you don't know. So a lot of women see a pregnancy as like a medical condition and it's not, it's just a different condition in your life where you're carrying a child, right? It's not, um, it's not a handicap. Um, so that's like one thing. And then the way women are told that you can't tolerate pain, so you need medical interventions or like there's so many, most OBGYNs have never seen a, an actual natural childbirth in their lives, you know, just like in a movie or in a, like a medical um, video, but so I would like to be involved in childbirth education because when I went to a childbirth educator, I started off in a hospital setting and at about six or seven months, I decided to go um, the route of a midwife and have a home birth. And it was, um, and then I found the childbirth educator where I learned all the things that I didn't even know that I didn't know about my own body. And I was someone that was always like pretty in tune with my body and, um, my physicality. And, um, but there was just so many things that I didn't know, um, to include the fact that the third, um, the third, um, what was the third most uh, common reason for deaths in the U.S. was um, uh, medical malpractice at that point. And we live in a, you know, in a civilized society, right? And we have good doctors, good hospitals here in the States. And um, it's still the third reason for death. Something wrong with that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And for women of color, um, infant mortality and maternal mortality are a lot higher than in other developed nations. So there's something wrong with that. And, what, what's, your take on, what, what's your take on that? What, what do you see the reasons as I, people have different views of this? Mm, I'm sure there are a lot of reasons. And I think um, lifestyle choices probably play some role in it. I think... Um, there is um there are cases where some doctors don't listen to uh, certain people's complaints. I know that there's a study that shows that um there's been um they've shown that like doctors usually discount people of color uh, complaints to pain compared to maybe their white counterparts, and there's things like that. But um you know I'm not. I'm not so immersed in that, that I can give you like stats and things like concrete. But for me, it was just, um, like I said, motherhood just opened my eyes to a lot of things and showed me what I can do with my body and what so many women don't know that is well within their power to do. Right. So if, 
if the mandates do stay in place, what you're kind of saying is that would lead you down a path to self-employment in a different field, basically. Right. You're not considering just leaving the city and being a firefighter elsewhere or no. um I probably I have considered leaving the city, but um whether I stayed here or not, I still would probably want to be self-employed and not feel as if I'm under somebody's thumb in this way again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If there were a mandate um, that extended to self-employed people. How would that happen? I don't We'd know. We'd have to let that happen. <laughs> They're trying to do that in California, though. That's one of the bad bills that some um, freedom fighters there have stopped from happening thus far, but they are trying to do that in California, that even as a freelancer, you'd have to have a vaccine in order to work, which if that doesn't tell you it's about control, at least in some sense, I don't know what's going to wake people up. So that is a, a possibility. You're asking how would that happen? And then you're, you're giving me the answer, which is exactly how they're doing it in California, right? Um, One state. If that happens. But right. if it is a possibility. Would you then, if that were a universal requirement, would you move? Would you have, you know, decide to leave? Yeah, I would leave. Yeah. 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 Hi, this is Amy. I'm interrupting the podcast for a moment to let you know that after my conversation with Sophie, I took another look at the current New York City workplace vaccination requirements, and I learned that self-employed workers and sole practitioners are in fact covered by the vaccine mandate. Everyone who works at a workplace or interacts with other workers or the public in the course of their business is required to be vaccinated under the current policy. My apologies for not having been up to speed on that before we recorded this conversation. I've included links to the information about the city's vaccination requirements in the notes to this episode so that you can take a look at all the details of these policies for yourself. Now back to my conversation with Sophie. So um, this is a loss to the fire department. (laughs) They trained you. Um, you did the job for a long time. You're an experienced firefighter as well as your partner, I assume has been doing it for what? He's been doing it for even longer since 2005. He, um, um, in the department there, there's this, um, like recognition that's called a pre-hospital save. So it's, um, when you, um, keep a person alive enough, um, where they survive a heart attack. Um, and that's usually proven by the AED that we use. You know, it'll show that um, they had no life when we got there and we were able to bring them back. And so we'll get things like a pre-hospital save or a unit citation for things like that. And then there's uh, bigger recognitions, which my partner has received uh, two, one unit medal that his whole engine received for a fire. And um, another one, he got an individual medal. And this was during the pandemic. At a fire during the pandemic, my partner received the medal. And he's somebody that the department could be losing. So you're, neither of you are at work there now. You haven't been there for months. Um, But give me your sense of 
what the loss to the department is from people like you and your partner um, if you're terminated. Do you, do you think that it impacts the fire department in general? What have, what have you seen? Um, <clears throat> I do think it's a waste of taxpayer money to invest this much money in, in our training in our um in our time on you know our experience and then just have us uh thrown out you know like yesterday's news but i also think it affects morale in the firehouses when it's pretty clear that the city just sees us as a number and we're all dispensable and um you know i i still talk to the guys at work and i know how they're feeling and how miserable a lot of people are and how some people, they are so upset that they made the choice that they made. You're talking about people who took the vaccine. Yeah. Why, why are they upset? Different reasons, you know? I'll get text messages and they're like, I wish I could do what you're doing. Thanks for standing up for us. Um, the job isn't the same anymore and they mean it they know they know that the city doesn't care about them and I think it's hard to look in the mirror and know that you're working for a company at this point that doesn't care about you. It's a job that has a lot of heart to it, right? Yeah, we still love each other, you know. The fire department is always the people, but, you know, the hierarchy, the, the, the city, the administration has shown that it doesn't care, you know, about its workers, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's not, um, in terms of pay, being a, a firefighter is, makes you what, middle-class, right? Um, like um, work, higher, high working class, I guess. <laughs> I don't think it makes us middle-class, but maybe, <laughs> maybe bottoms here, middle-class. <laughs> so it's not uh, something people, and, and, and until this happened, it gave you a measure of job security, right? right. So there's, you can make a decent living, but not, you know, you're not, you know, yeah, we're not buying mansions. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you make a decent living, you have job security. Um, but there's something beyond that, that leads people to become firefighters. Right. Um, like what, what kind of people are firefighters? What is it that, what is it in the character of a person that makes them drawn to that job and good at that job? Um, I think uh, most firefighters, you know, are the types that'll give, give you the shirt off their backs. They're the ones that if, um, you need help moving, they're, they're going to help you move that. And you see it at a line of duty funerals. They're the ones that show up for your families when something terrible happens. Um, you know, they fundraise for, um, for the widows and, uh, kids. Of firefighters that don't make it, you know. Um, 
you know, that's like the essence of, you know, we do everything together. We become ingrained in our, in our uh, coworkers' kids' lives. You know, we know when somebody's kid is graduating, you know, it just becomes an extension of the family. We have picnics together. We have barbecues together. We have Christmas parties um, where we do things with the, with the children together. Um, so it just becomes an extension of, um, of your family. We've, uh, we've seen very recently, um, why you guys are, why people call you New York's bravest. There was a firefighter, uh, who lost his life recently. Um, he was 31. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, it, it really is a high stakes job <laughs> and it really, um, requires more than the, the nine to five, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> more of a, a commitment and, uh, a willingness to really put your life on the line for other people. Right. Um, uh, what was his name? T uh, Timothy Klein, Timothy Klein, Timothy Klein. Yeah. So, uh, we, you know, my condolences to his family. Yeah. And, um, and I think all New Yorkers, um, there, there has never been any anti-firefighter sentiment. <laughs> There's a lot of controversy about the police, um, but people have always really um, just in an uncontroversial way appreciated firefighters because they're right. really there to save your butt if you need it <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and put themselves on the line doing it. So that's what you've been doing. Um, what have I not asked you that, that I should be asking you about? Well, I, um, would like to remind people that, you know, as much as, uh, there's talk about the mandates and our jobs, um, what I think is really, um, important to understand is that this is still a medical intervention that's being forced on people. And there are many firefighters that took it under duress. And um, in four months, we have had five firefighters die of medical causes. And the youngest was 31 in probationary school. And um, it was all like sudden heart conditions or just a sudden medical episode, five and four months. We've never seen that before. So I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical researcher. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But I do think that when something like that happens and the, the UFOA called for a query into what was happening and does it have something to do with the vaccination being rolled out in the way that they were, they should have put, that should have put a stop to a mandate you know, where this is an unknown. And if you look at VAERS data and you look at the, um, the papers that have been released uh, via Pfizer after they were court ordered to, and you see that heart conditions um, are something that are on the rise because of, you know, it, it's been related to the Pfizer dump, right? It's, it's in there, you can read it yourself, that a heart condition, a sudden medical episode could be a side effect um, of these vaccines. I want people to remember that, that 
it could have been prevented, maybe. And that is something that people should be demanding answers to. And these vaccines shouldn't be forced on anybody. You know, um, just like the mayor spoke about a woman's choice is her choice and any decision that she makes for her reproductive rights should be her own. It's the same thing with any medical intervention, you know? And so I really wanna never forget that there's been five guys that have died in four months and we still don't know really the answers. We don't know why. And that hasn't put a stop to these mandates. And it really should. It really should. And people should be demanding answers. People should be on the streets protesting when guys are just dying <clears throat> for an unknown. Why? So you've been you've been part of the protest movement through Bravest for Choice. Um, it's been a relatively small movement. I, I think that's, would you agree with that? In terms of the turnout you see at protests and just kind of the scale of it, I can, I can remember, uh, maybe not now, but in, you know, like a year ago, I would um, watch protests in Europe People were protesting mandates and various, you know, public health measures um, related to coronavirus. And there were big, really huge crowds in the streets mm -hmm. in uh, lots of different European cities, some other places in the world. Um, here, I don't think we we haven't seen that scale ever. Uh, mm -hmm. protest. What, what do you think is going on there? Um, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, Bravest for Choice did turn out the biggest protest in October, right before the mandates got dropped on us, October 25th, I think, right? That was when we shut down the Brooklyn Bridge um, for miles. And it was like over two hours that the, the bridge was shut down. And after that, yep, we lost steam. I think people thought that that was going to be it. And then it wasn't and people felt defeated. So there's one, I think that's one, um, you know, part of it that people feel defeated. And um, another part of it is probably that I think in the United States, we haven't had any conflict on our soil in a really long time. And uh, European, European nations have, and they know what it's like. They know how close it is to be under dictatorship because um, a lot of them have had it in their soil, if not them, you know, their, their grandparents or great grandparents. So I think Americans are very comfortable. You know, I'm a child of immigrants. So I've heard a lot of stories. Um, Dominicans have lived under dictatorship and so have Colombians and so have their neighbors. Um, so to me, it's a very real, um, I think uh, the threat to democracy is always there. And so I think, um, the price you pay for freedom is constant vigilance and fighting for your freedoms. And um, it's part of, uh, you know, being a Marine that you understand that freedom isn't free. And that's at every rung, you know, it's not just um, guys dying for, you know, guys going overseas and dying. And when I say guys, it's all inclusive. It's um, women and men going out and dying, you know? Um, but it's here, it's locally, you know, people have to participate and 
be involved and call out politicians and maybe get involved politically themselves. And so I think that the movement has, hasn't been that great in the States because people are comfortable. You know, people, I don't know, they don't feel it yet. At the same time, you're telling me that there are people that you talk to who are still on the job, um, who are not comfortable with the fact that they took the vaccine, are not happy with the current state of affairs. Mm -hmm. And I think I've had those conversations with a lot of people too, personal conversations with people who uh, took a vaccine to, to keep their job and they're not happy about it. Um, but we're not seeing those people. <laughs> um coming out and in large numbers and saying we don't like this policy um we'd like to at least have a, a public discussion about it uh you know we reject it um i i don't see those people who are not happy with it coming yeah. out taking action what's going on there that's a good question i don't know people are built different you know some people uh, I don't know. I think about that. You know, why don't most, why don't more people speak out when they're not happy with it? That's a good question. I think because people just like to be anonymous, which I get. I want to go back to being anonymous. You know, I still am in most circles. It's not like I'm a celebrity, nor would I want that. Um, but I would like to go back to just being uh, a city worker that nobody knew about. You know, um, but people don't want to lose their jobs. People don't want to lose their comfort. People want to stay anonymous, which I get. Do you think that's a big part of it that they have families they're supporting and they just feel that they need to have that stability for their families? Yeah, I think some guys are just, they can't wait till their retirement at this point. They're doing what they have to do so they can get to retirement and then just say goodbye to the city. There's always that talk mm -hmm. since this started. There's 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 been that talk since this started um, where guys that would have done 30 years on this job or would have waited to age out at 65 are going to do the bare minimum 20 and out and they're gone. Because they don't like this policy and they don't feel the support from the city anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't like the direction that the city's taking, you know, and the city's dangerous, no matter what people try to tell you. Okay. So, so the, the last thing that, uh, you know, I asked you if you, if there was anything else that you wanted to um, talk about there that I wasn't asking about, and you were talking about the, the recent deaths in the department. Um, is there, are there other things that, that you want to bring up before? <laughs> before we call it a wrap? Uh, yeah, we've talked for a while. So I think we've hit on everything and I'm sure I've missed things. Um, yeah, just remind people that this fight is, you, you know, these fights are never won by like big crowds. You know, it's always a small percentage of people that are able to affect change, you know, through sheer determination, perseverance, and like grit, um, and holding people accountable and applying pressure. So I think that's important to let your listeners know that, you know, apply pressure. 
and expect more for yourself. You know, then this may not be the line that was crossed for you now, but eventually there might be a line that's going to get crossed for you. And you want to support those that are going to fight for you because maybe you won't be out there fighting, but support the people that are because it's not easy. And um, donate because we need the money for our lawsuits. We want to win this. And um, it's do not easy. The, do, you, do you know what the timeline is for the, uh, for the lawsuit? They try to drag this out so much. The city has asked for more time on things that they should have had already um, anytime they're doing court. But so I don't know. Last I heard was that we were due back in court like in two or three weeks, something like that. So within my organization, I'm not typically the one that uh, deals with the legal aspect. But um, yeah, that was the last that I've, I've heard like we're due back in court. I think in two or three weeks. So we'll see what that brings. Well, I hope to talk to you again down the line mm -hmm. and get an update on how things are going um, with the legal case, with you personally, mm -hmm. where, where this is taking you um, and your family. Um, and um, in the interim, I, I'll be talking to more people who are affected by this um, so that we can we can all understand what's happening. Um, people will have different opinions about it. And um, but I think it's really important for people to hear directly from people like you who are directly affected by these policies. Right. So, so that's what we'll be doing. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Amy. Thank you so much for for talking with me and uh, Thank you for being a firefighter. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Have a good day. Okay. So oh, I'm can, I, can I plug where people could donate? Um, uh, yes. Yes. So um, our organization is bravestforchoice.org and you can donate there at our Give, Send, Go. Um, and like I said, all our money goes to um, our lawsuit or you can go directly to nyfrl.org which is new yorkers for religious liberties.org and donate straight to um the collective for the law for one of our lawsuits so either either of those would work